It is so good to see you joining us online and joining us here in person. It is a little bit wet outside, but it's warm inside, and so I'm glad that you guys have made it this morning, made it a priority to be with us. We are wrapping up our series on relationship goals. And let's be honest, some of you got drug here because uh, you've got some work to do in your own relationships. And so you're wrestling with how do we start fixing them? And maybe in this series, you've been a little bit of, I was hoping for something a little more practical. And this one is really, we've kind of rooted ourselves into our relationship with God. Because foundationally, we believe that that's where every relationship springs from. And so I want to, I know Aaron just prayed, but I want to pray again this morning because there's a lot on my mind. I think there's a lot on our minds. And I want to make sure that our hearts are open to what God's going to say to us this morning as we wrestle with our relationships. So can we bow our heads again? Let's pray. God, we pause just for a moment to reflect that our relationship with you is essential to the relationships around us. And sometimes, God, we, we throw that to the side, whether it be at home or work or at play. We just kind of go through the rhythms and routines because we're smart enough. We've got ideas. We have certain things that we want certain ways. And so in our, in our efforts to make the life that we want, we sometimes push away the life that you've created us for. And so, God, give us open hands and open hearts and open ears and give us the ability to see the world around us as you see the world. May your spirit prompt in us the courage to change, the humility to repent, and the surrendered nature to serve as Jesus serves. God, we love you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. I think if we were honest, most of us would say middle school at best was awkward for us. And to go to a middle school dance was Fright Fest, right? You think about that for a moment. Some of you go back. Some of you, it's just a couple of years. For some of you, it's maybe a decade. For some of us, it's way back there in the recesses of our mind that we tried to bury. But you wrestle with all the issues. Do I take a date? Do I go with friends? Do I go alone? Do I hug the wall? Do I hang out with friends? Or do I dare to hit the dance floor? Some of you, I can tell, are beginning to sweat, beginning to think about scheduling your next therapy appointment, even going back to that dark, dark place. But as we grow up, middle school dances are just the beginning point of adventure when we think about relationships. Middle school dances are a rite of passage for so many of us. And maybe it was the first time we, we, we dressed up to go out with friends. Maybe it was the first kiss we ever had. And maybe it was just a real adjustment just to actually go out and be a part of an event with friends and people putting all their time together to make this moment last. Maybe it was the first time we had some public display of relationship happening and it became official But whether it was monumental or catastrophic, junior high dances have marked each and every one of us. But here's what I know about the middle school dance. It was only ever intended to be an event where kids could hang out and get to know each other. We made it so much more. 
And that's part of our dilemma with relationships is we hype them up, we overemphasize the wrong things, and then we consume our lives with things that really don't matter. So we began to talk about this a little bit, just even as we talked about friendship or dating or marriage, and we started with this, this kind of beginning point that relationships were never intended to complete you, but to complement you to strengthen, to support you, but not to complete you. That is a place reserved for our relationship with Jesus. Week two, we began to unpack, though, the truth, though, that we, we build our relationships on what we prioritize first. And so what, whatever we seem to put at the forefront of our walk, whatever we seem to put at the forefront of our relationships, that begins to be what it is built on. And so as we paused and confronted, as we challenged and encouraged, we landed on this overall value, that followers of Jesus set relationship goals from their relationship with Jesus. That if we have a relationship with Jesus, then first and foremost, our relationship should be built on our relationship with Jesus. Because what we recognize is if we compromise to get into a relationship, our relationship will oftentimes express compromise, whether it be in our values, whether it be in our goals, whether it be in who God has created us to be. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3. We have just been walking through verse by verse. So far, the first 11 verses... And in this conversation, we realize that our past is forgiven, our, fe- our, our present is secure, and our future is hopeful. And last week, we talked so heavily about how we have to put some things to death and keep them there. And literally throw off some of the habits and hang-ups and some of the behaviors that we have that pull us away from our relationship with Jesus. Today we're going to be starting in verse 12, and I want to remind you that this is a a letter written to a young church. I say young church not because it is full of young adults, but I say it's a young church because they had not been Christ followers for very long, and their identity is being shook by the community that's around them. They see their neighborhood, their friends, uh, the culture that they're a part of pressing into relationships differently than what they feel convicted to do and who they feel like they're called to be before God. And so the Apostle Paul begins to reshape their identity, challenging them to live differently than the world around them. Here's what it says starting in verse 12. Therefore... Meaning because of what you've already read, what we already understand, this is our line in the sand. This is who we need to become. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, 
which binds them together in perfect unity. The beginning of our relationship starts with our identity in Jesus. And so this passage begins recognizing the things that we need to change, recognizing the things we need to step away from. A line is drawn and we say, hey, because of who we are, who are we? We're God's chosen people. He picked us first. He loved us first. He provided a way for us first so that we might know this new life with him. And we are holy. We are set apart. We are called to live differently in our relationships than what we see around us. And we are dearly, dearly loved. How much so? For those of us that follow after Jesus, we recognize that he gave everything of himself. That God in human flesh would sacrifice himself so that humanity might be served and loved in a way that we might know God's love. And that paradigm of God to earth lived in a sacrificial relationship for others, not from others, is the paradigm by which we are being called to live. So there's some, there's some evidence of this love that is being described in these moments. Just like last week, there were a couple of challenges, some action words that we need to embrace. Paul now is pushing forward and he's giving some evidences of what this love looks like revealed in us. First and foremost, we'd be the kind of people that we would clothe ourselves. Clothe ourselves. Isn't that what it says? says that in verse 12, we would clothe ourselves. It's a, it's a willful choice that when we get up in the morning, we would put on ourselves character of God in every relationship. Meaning that from the moment that you get out of bed and your toes hit the floor, there is a mental decision that I will not live my life at the pace of what the world calls me to. And in order to do that, there is a uniform that I need to wear. And it is a clothing that only looks like Jesus. He says, so, so here are some virtues. And you'll recognize some of these virtues because these five are part of what we call the big nine, the fruit of the spirit, right? These are characteristics that will come out of our life because God's spirit is alive in us. Meaning you can't just go buy this outfit online. You can't just find this at a store. You can't fake it till you make it with this. This is either the character of God in us or it is our impersonation of what it should look like. So Paul says, put these characteristics on. First and foremost, compassion. This is the internal gut-wrenching desire to help someone else in need. Kindness. It's a gracious sensitivity it's a genuine care for others. Humility. To intentionally think of yourself less so that you might think more of those around you. And gentleness. It's an openness towards the grace first mentality for everyone. And patience. A resistance towards retaliation and retribution. 
Sometimes we think about patience and it's just losing our temper or, or things not going our way. And, and, and we're pressing in and saying, it's, it's that plus. And the reason we lose our patience is because we feel we've been wronged and we want to retaliate that our life is not going way, the way we want it to go. So Paul says, because you're loved, because we're holy and set aside, let's get dressed in a willful way that only looks like Jesus at home, at work, and at play. And then he calls us to bear with one another. I I would think of it as this, this image of an athlete that has torn something or injured themselves and people run to their aid and they take them and they put them up on their shoulder and they help them off the field or the court or wherever they may be competing. Paul's giving us a picture that he gives to multiple churches and when he describes it in other ways, like to the church in Galatia, he talks about how when people are either caught in sin or, or, or people have a burden that is too great to carry, that we would come and restore people gently. We would grab them and lift them up and carry part of their burden. Now, a burden is too large of a load for a season. You've taken on more than you should. You've made mistakes that are now bearing consequences. You're in a scenario where by your strength and by your ability, you can't do this on your own. And so Paul says, we, we bear one another's burdens. We help people when their burden is too heavy so that they can find the strength to carry what's appropriate in their load. Literally what this is in scripture language or in the original language is this idea of cargo and ships at sea. That one ship has too much on its weight and the ship is now losing its way. It's losing control and another ship comes up alongside and they offload part of the cargo so that both can make it back to port safely. To reset, to readjust so that we both can succeed with an appropriate load of what God's called us to carry. You might have to wear a different uniform if you're going to help carry somebody else's burden. But I know you're going to have to wear a different uniform if you're going to begin to do what he says next, which is forgive one another. I love to be forgiven, don't you? I love it when I make a drastic mistake at home in front of my wife or my kids, and they say, you know what, it's okay. I love you. It is difficult for me to forgive others. I won't ask you if that's true of you. But we like to receive the forgiveness of God, but we struggle to give the forgiveness of God. And so Paul calls this time out and says, this uniform that we're going to wear, these these characteristics that we're going to put on us, this life of the Spirit that should exude from us, It's one thing to be compassionate and help somebody out, but it's a whole nother level to also come along and say, I'm going to carry your burdens even when I know you've wronged me. 
I'm going to stand next to you, and I'm going to help you through this difficult time, even though every part of my body wants retaliation. We've been there, haven't we? The wrong thing got said by a coworker, a boss, a friend. Even like on social media or other outlets, we have these moments of conflict. I mean, this is a difficult passage, not only for adults, but middle school students. It's one thing to help somebody because Christ has helped us. It's another thing entirely to forgive them, knowing that maybe their very burden is because, has, has been a consequence towards you. And so Paul says this, bind them together with love. It's the idea of a belt. It holds your outfit together. That the umbrella of all that we are and everything in our identity first and foremost comes from our relationship with God. And as it covers us, it then empowers us to love the world differently. So maybe you've got someone who's deeply wronged you. Maybe you've got someone who you just can't stand. Maybe you're in a completely different dry spot in your marriage or your relationship. Maybe you serve in a civic capacity and yet you feel like the world that you serve hates you. Paul says, put on your big boy pants. And that's not get tougher, get meaner, get harder. It's learn to love. Learn to love. But what does he say after that? The next few verses he begins to go on and he says this in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly and teach you. Admonish one another with all wisdom through, through psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit. Singing uh, to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name, Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Uh, we started with this idea of, of dancing, right? Middle school dances are just a, a, a terrible spot for us uh, of fear and awkwardness. But the reality is this, when we talk about relationships, we're talking about how it takes two to tango, COVID has stripped us from community thinking and has caused us to jump into individual thinking. COVID has stripped us of thinking about those around us and only begin to think about those who are right with us. Maybe you're a parent. Maybe you're a spouse. Maybe you're a teacher. But oftentimes, when we begin to think about the world around us, we have limited back how we used to think about how we would live our lives in relationship. 
And so when we think about relationships, what can happen very quickly is who I need to be with God, how I need to live my life is just this individual relationship. And maybe occasionally, if I love you or like you a lot, maybe then I'll extend myself to you. But the metaphor of the Christian walk is that life is constantly a dance. And we are engaging in relationships. And we are called to dance with one another. The phrase would be, it takes two to tango. Right? And so, as much as some of you would love to see me tango, I cannot... The reality is, if we're to hit the dance floor, some of us will be stepping on each other's toes. We may be bumping into one another. It's awkward because we may not know the rhythm. We may not know the posture, but but Jesus is encouraging us to step out onto the dance floor and love, dance with one another. And most of us are pleased if, if we and our partner, if we and our partner can at least get the dance done, we're satisfied. But what God is calling us to is to allow him into those relationships. And so while it may take two to tango, it takes three to master the dance. Meaning you may be at peace somewhat at your workplace. You may be at peace somewhat at home. You may be at peace somewhat at church. But in order for it to move in the rhythm of which God can use us all, our dancing and rhythm has to be surrendered to Jesus so that we can serve and sacrifice for one another. Uh, Last week, uh, the the writer of Colossians, he begins to talk about everything inside of us that we need to put to death and get rid of. And then he makes this shift to how our relationships are expressed externally. When he draws the line in the sand, though, he starts with how we're seen, the clothing that we wear before others, and then he backs us in to where we should be rooted. And you'll notice in these three verses, you see phrases like the peace of Christ, the message of Christ, in the name the Lord Jesus Christ. You see this progression of foundation that this is the rock in the box. In order for peace to be a part of your dance. I'm intrigued by this passage because it would not necessarily be the passage that I would naturally jump to when we talk about relationships, but there is a direct correlation to our, our proximity to Christ and our peace with others. One commentator says it this way, the peace of Christ rules where the word of Christ dwells. What's that mean for us? Those who are closest to Christ or more clothed like Christ. Those of, us, those of us who are closest to Christ are going to be most clothed like Christ. Meaning it goes hand in hand with your surrendered nature towards God's spirit, God's word, and God's people, the depth in which you experience peace in the world around you. So it gets written this way. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. 
Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, that word rule is not a negotiated conversation. It's the idea of that it has preeminence, that it prioritizes, that it pushes its way into every portion of your lives so that whether you're at work, whether you're at home, or whether you're at play, you stand before God and you say, God, because I have peace with you, how do I bring peace here? How am I the kind of person that can stop and pause and live in peace with the person in front of me? Maybe it's our son. Maybe it's our coworker. Maybe it's our spouse. But Paul says we have to let Christ's peace be the foundation for us before we're going to have peace with others. It's this idea that we would have relational unity. We've been wrestling with this concept in our elder team and in our staff a bit. But relational unity, the the kind of unity that Jesus talks about in John 17, is this marriage of submission and humility. That I would want more for you than from you. That I would humble myself to learn to serve you just as Christ himself gave himself up as a ransom for many. Then he goes on to say, let the message of Christ dwell in you richly. Some of you are like, oh, this message of Christ, is there a, is there a secret slang? Is there some sort of idea? No, it's, it's just the simple idea that if you have surrendered your life to Christ, that it would marinate in every portion of your life. Because I am forgiven, I begin to forgive others. Because I've received grace, I will be gracious towards others. Because I am loved, I will love in the way that... It's that the message of Jesus, that he died on a cross to bear our sins, overcame sin and death, is victorious through the grave. Now he holds our life eternal. That that eternal knowledge would impact the temporary circumstances of our walk. The peace of Christ reigns in our life so that the message of Christ begins to reverberate, resonate, even agitate our lives in a way that it percolates over into the relationships around us. And he challenges us to teach, instruct, cheer one another on on how to live out this life of holiness. And then he uses a word, admonish. I have never been admonished and liked it. Has anybody else? No. But there are moments in the game where your coach does not have the time to say please or thank you. There are moments when we want to win that somebody's going to have to capture our attention so that we can get the ball across the goal line. And Paul's trying to say this. We want to teach. We want your everyday life to live out this life of love. But doggone it, when we miss it, we call each other out. We cannot be a church that allows ourselves to drop the ball when it comes to love. And so Paul says... If the peace of Christ will rule, then the message of Christ will come out of our lives. 
so that everything we want to do would be done in the name of our Lord Jesus. This word Lord is a powerful word. It's said like eight different times in the following verses because it's a reminder that unlike a president that we can vote in or li- and like or not like, Jesus is our God who's like a king who is there whether we ask for him or not. That God rules our world. And Paul says, so let's, let's do it the easy way or the hard way. We can either surrender our lives and begin to think and act like Jesus, or we can try and save our own lives and live at war with the world around us. So there are two keys I want to give you when we think about this passage and we let it reverberate in our lives. There are two keys to the surrendered life that I want to mention real quick. The first key to a surrendered life is like Jesus, we need to think we before me. We before me. Uh, Truth is, we can win more often as we than we can as me. Together, there's so much more to celebrate. Nowhere in this series have we pushed for more isolation or, or hiding. We've actually pushed ourselves to step out, to trust God, even in the midst of difficult relationships. But this is where the communal aspect of both the church, the family, and the world around us, we have to begin to think about others the way Jesus thinks about us. Second of all, we need to self-examine before we cross-examine. We need to self-examine before we cross-examine. Friends, we are quick to draw when somebody's wronged us. We are quick to point out when others don't measure up. But when our mind begins to switch and think, and when we think they, there should be an alarm that says, hey, we've got to stop. We've got to begin to change the way that we think We need to fight for others, not against one another. We need to recognize when and where we need to promote our relationships so that God can work in them. The bottom line is chapter, or verse 17 is kind of this summary statement that whatever we do, wherever we go, whatever we say, however we think, whatever our life is about, it must be about love. And the way God loves us. We wrestle with this passage in so many different ways. But over the last week, we've been trying to unpack this idea of up, out, and in. And we unpack this, we just wrestle with it this way. God calls us, when we think up, God calls us to obediently live out this new identity that we have in him. To forgive, to pursue love to bear with one another. That's what the joy-filled life in Christ looks like. When we think about this passage and looking out, our relationships with others says so much about our relationship with Jesus. And our ability to forgive, love, and bear one another's burdens is gonna be directly proportional to our surrendered nature for God to love, forgive, and bear our burdens with us. 
So how do we do that? We have to be people of the message of Christ. That what God has done for us is transformed through us. That the world around us would see our lives forgiven, our lives restored, not just because of the change that has happened to us individually, but because of the way that we treat those around us. Let's move to our time of response. Many of you have taken this, uh, this bookmark. And you know of a person that uh, probably needs Jesus. The best way to begin to reach them is not to show up with a track or with some sort of clever saying or try and confront them about, hey, if you died today, where would you be tomorrow? But just begin to pray for them. Each of us have one person in our lives or should have one person in our life that we would love to see experience the same peace that we've had. Maybe today you're going to take that card and you're going to write down that name and you're going to commit to pray until Easter at least that you would see God work in their lives through you. But frankly, maybe there are some of you in this room that you've been holding on to tradition or religious routine or whatever and you yourself have never surrendered your life to Christ. Maybe there's a decision of faith that you need to make today. I would encourage you to use the app the Sunday button and fill out a connect card. Let's make a decision of faith today so that the peace of Christ would begin to dwell and resonate us in such a way that it would percolate over into the relationships around us. You know, it's, it's both out of priority and routine that we do this time we call communion. Communion is for those of us who have a relationship with Jesus Christ to pause and reflect on his sacrifice. This is a meal that he actually uh, set up before his death, burial, and resurrection to, to talk about how God had delivered them in the past. Now God is delivering humanity through his sacrifice. And he instituted it in a way that it so deeply dwelt in the lives of the early followers that when you read the book of Acts, you begin to realize that they prioritized having a meal where they would pause and they would eat the bread and drink the juice. And literally they would say, this is because of his sacrifice. This is because of how we've been changed. And so today we pause in reflection of that. In the same way that Jesus sat down with his followers, he said to the bread, this, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And in the same way, he took the juice. He said, this is my blood poured out for you. Take and drink.
this simple yet profound practice reminds us that Jesus lived in a posture of surrender and sacrifice. There was no relationship that he encountered that did not reflect his surrender and obedience to God or his surrendered power and nature before humanity. And we are called to do the same. So maybe today you're holding on tight because a spouse seems to love the bottle more than they love you. Maybe today, frankly, you're just mad at God because a great hope, a great desire, something that's good in nature itself has not happened for you. Or maybe you just sit in this moment and apathy and callousness have caused your ears to hear everything in a critical word or your eyes to see the world in a sense of bitterness, or your mouth to speak with a sense of disgust. Jesus gave himself so that we might know his love. May we give our life so the world might know his love through us. Last of all, I want to encourage you to also give. You can use the give and respond boxes on your way out or use the app. But may we surrender ourselves, even in our finances, towards the mission of God and the work of the church. Let's stand and respond.